Now I'd like to repeat the word of welcome that you have already received. It's uh, great to see so many here. And uh, also thank the Assembly at Midland Park for the opportunity to be here to share in the responsibility of the conference. It's a little uh, intimidating to fly away from home and come to a place you're not that familiar with. My wife and I used to come to Midland Park a lot more, maybe 20 years ago. It sounds a little scary to say that. It sounds like a long, long time ago. But um, for those who may not know the connection, my wife Rachel is Mary Zudema's sister. But don't hold that against me. And uh, we used to come down before we had children and kind of got busy and uh, life has a way of keeping you occupied. So it's great to be back. There's a number that I know. There's a lot that I don't. But I appreciate the opportunity to open the Word of God together. I'm going to ask you to turn, please, to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And I'll tell you before we read this scripture passages, what I have in my mind today so that you'll be able to follow along as we read them. I would like to speak today a little bit at the beginning of the first session on the unfinished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The unfinished work of Christ. So we're going to read um, a number of passages together and then hopefully as we make some comments you will uh, understand the link that has brought these together in my mind. First John chapter 2 verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Over, please, backwards to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2. And we'll read from verse 14. Hebrews 2 and verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor or help, he is able to help those that are tested. Over to chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Over to chapter 7. Chapter 7 and verse 23. Looking back to the priests of the Old Testament, under the Mosaic Law, verse 23 says, They truly were many priests, because they were not allowed to continue by reason of death. But this man, speaking of the Lord Jesus and his high priestly work, 
But this man, because he continues ever, has an unchangeable or an untransferable priesthood. He continues forever in this work. Wherefore he is able also, verse 25, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. And let's look now at the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1 and verse 10. Difficult here because really you could read all of this last part of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and 3 to get what I want to get, but I'll trust that you hopefully have some understanding of these first three chapters and the letters to the seven churches, uh, representative churches in Asia. And if you don't, then if the Lord spares you till you get some time later today, I would encourage you to read all three chapters. But in verse 10 of chapter 1, John is in the spirit on the Lord's day. He hears behind him a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden, the word is candlesticks, and the authorized, a better word would be lampstands. So the idea is seven individual, not attached to the candlestick, but seven individual golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Verse 18 after John falls before him, he says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. <clears throat> Over to chapter 2. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know thy works and thy labor and so on. Drop down to verse 5. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. I'm just going to read some scattered verses here, but the thought, especially for younger believers, the thought I want you to get from this section is this. I want you to notice the activity of this one who is moving in the midst of these seven lampstands. So just read a few scattered verses and look at the, the, the verbs that are referring to what he is doing. Over and over he says, I know. Over and over he says, I will come. Over and over in this section you see the activity of this one who is moving in the middle of the lampstands, the seven assemblies. So back to chapter 2 then, let's look at verse 8 and 9. Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty and so on. Verse 12. Unto the angel of the church in Pergamos write. These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied thy faith. 
and so on. Verse 16, repent or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 18, unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these things saith the Son of God who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and so on. Down to chapter 3 and verse 1. Unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. And down to verse 14. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. Verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Now, I'll preface my comments this morning by saying that nothing that I say today is likely to be new to any older, experienced, knowledgeable believer here. So some of you ones that are well along in life, uh, you're likely not going to hear anything new today. And if you want to tune me out and wait for uh, Mr. McKeown to get up, then that's fine. But I would like to speak to some of the younger believers here today. I think we are very accustomed to hearing, preaching, about the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thankfully, over the years, our heritage has been that the gospel has, by and large, been faithfully preached. I was born into a home where my parents were missionaries. I was brought up, first of all, in Trinidad in the West Indies, and then up in Toronto with my aunt and uncle that I lived with, taken out to gospel meetings like many of you likely in the audience. So we have grown up, weaned on gospel preaching, familiar with gospel preaching, and tremendous emphasis is placed on the finished work of Christ. And rightly so. And we all go back with an understanding, at least in some degree, an understanding of the work that the Lord Jesus did on the cross. And we understand that when he was there, he gave himself as a sacrifice for sin. He did it once and he finished the work and he satisfied God's requirements. And because of what he did and he finished, we can be saved and we are secure for eternity. Now, I want to take nothing at all away from any of that truth. If you've got a good grip of that truth in your soul, you hang on to it. And don't in any way let anything I say today come across as me saying that I want to loosen that grip. Not at all. Hold tenaciously to that. However, if that is all that I understand, I do worry at times that among some younger believers, and that's really what they grasp about the work of Christ, there is a danger that we, and I don't want to come across as irreverent, but there's a danger that our understanding of the work of the Lord Jesus and his involvement in my life and his interest in me is really just like a, a supernatural first responder. Sort of a cosmic fireman. 
Okay, what do first responders do? When a person's in distress, when they're in a burning building, they leap into action and they go and they rescue that person. And they take them out of the place of danger. And they dig them out of the fire and whatever it is. Having done that, the first responder moves on to the next person. And they wait for the next call. And the next fire. And they rescue another person. And they move on. Now, I'm taking nothing away from the work of first responders. I admire them. The men and women who are brave, courageous, committed, and they do that work. But never, ever view the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as simply coming in, seeing me in need and despair as a sinner, understanding the eternal fire to which I was heading, giving himself as a sacrifice for sin, rescuing me from the fire, and then simply moving on to rescue others. That is not at all the interest the Lord Jesus has in you, or that is not at all an accurate understanding of the interest and the involvement and the active work that the Lord Jesus is doing for you or for me. And what I would like to focus our attention on today are some of the things that the New Testament tells us that He continues to do. The unfinished work, the ongoing work that the Lord Jesus is involved in, even today, as we are here. Now, we're not going to touch on all of them today. There's things like, for example, he says in Matthew chapter 16 to Peter, Upon this rock I will build my church. That's an ongoing work. And I'm not really going to be focusing on that today. Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 1, and he says, He that has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. I'm not really touching on that today. What I do want to touch on with you today are three present-day activities of the Lord Jesus Christ, and particularly my desire is that you, especially younger believers, that you will understand the interest that He has in you, the personal implication that these works have for me as an individual as I seek to live for Him down here below. There's a real danger in Christian living at times of a person just getting a sense that they're just one among a large group of people and they're sort of lost in the crowd and there's no real sense of significance and there's no real sense of personal involvement and personal interaction and they're just, they're saved for eternity and they, they're glad for that, but there's not much else in terms of understanding what the Lord Jesus is doing and how interested He is in my life. And the tremendous reality of working for him as he is working for me. Now, lest anyone think that this is a self-centered message, that, you know, this is sort of the feel-good Christianity, that it's all about me and how it affects me, and uh, that's the center of Christianity. My desire today is actually the opposite. My desire is to get our focus on him and what he is currently doing. And if, by the Spirit of God, we can do that, it will have revolutionary impact in my life. So the three things I want to talk about. First of all, we're going to look at 1 John chapter 2. We read in 1 John chapter 2 that if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So this truth, the fact that I have an advocate, this truth is particularly relevant for me to remember Whenever I have sinned, this truth has particular relevance when I have failed somehow. 
When I am filled perhaps with a sense of discouragement and despair, not so much because of circumstances around me, but because of failure within me. And this sadly is a reality for all of us as Christians. We want to live for the Lord. We want our lives to matter. At least I hope we do. The fact that you're here today is a reasonably good indication that that's the case. You want your life to matter as a Christian. You want to please the Lord. You want to honor the Lord. You want a life that is going to have value for eternity. But as you start making progress along that journey, you fail. To some degree, every one of us, if we're honest, we have been here. Maybe we're there today. This is a daily reality in in some degree. But I would particularly like this morning to focus on the fact that circumstances can come along in an individual's life where perhaps in a, a greater sense, the devil is able to beat us down and we can become so discouraged with our own weakness and with our own failures, and with the the fact that we have displeased our Heavenly Father and we've done something wrong, and the devil hammers away at us with that truth. And this is how it plays out. I can't go back. I can't face him. I mean, as children, we remember that. You do something wrong, and you just don't really want to... Things aren't the way they should be with your mom or your dad, But you don't really want to face it. You don't really want to go and confront them. You don't really want. That's the prodigal in Luke 15 who's sitting in a far place. He's beginning to come to himself. But the father's house seems such a long, long, long ways away because of sin. Is there someone here today and that's where you are as a Christian? The outside, you still go through the motions, still showing up at the meetings and we're glad you're here today. But in your heart, there's a coldness There's a distance. There's almost a sense of despair. You're feeling like heaven is just so far away. I had an email just two weeks ago, not even two weeks ago now, from a young believer. This person had been running well, had emailed back and forth a number of times about things they'd enjoyed and they seemed to be growing and things were going pretty good. They got a summer job. And in that summer job, never saw it coming really, but in that summer job there was... A person of the opposite gender worked in the same office and a friendship struck up. This person wasn't a believer, had no spiritual interest at all, really. But a friendship struck up and as things progressed over a few weeks, they started meeting outside of work hours to go out for a meal together. And as things progressed a little more, they found they had so much in common. And as things progressed a little more, there began to be some emotional connection and bonding between them. By the time two months had gone by, I got an email quite surprising email, really, about two weeks ago. I had emailed the person and asked how things were going. Um, Really, more or less, just small talk, to be honest. And I got an email back that said, how would you like me to answer? Just sort of say everything's fine, or to be honest. So I wrote back, and I said, well, I'd like you to be honest. So they were. They told me exactly what was going on. Nothing immoral had happened. It hadn't progressed to that point, thankfully. But this young believer had gotten to a point where they were really being pulled with the relationship and they were cold as ice towards their Heavenly Father. So they asked me what they should do. So I told them, I mean, there's pretty simple advice, really. I mean, you end it. You don't look to end it gracefully. You don't look to explain your way out of it. You don't look to, you end it. If something is going to cause me to sin, I cut it off. And I leave the results to God. 
So I had an email from the same believer just before coming here two days ago. And these were their words to me. They said, I did what you said. I ended it and left it. But right now, it seems like heaven is a million miles away. And I just feel so cold. And I feel like what I pray, it just bounces off the ceiling. And it's not the same as it used to be. Is there someone like that here today? You know what the devil hammers you with? It'll never be the same again. You can't ever get back to where you were. You're a failure. You're no good. You've just disappointed God. You've let Him down. That is exactly the situation in which this truth is so critically needed. The word advocate literally means someone who comes alongside to help. So it's someone whose mission it is, whose purpose it is, whose mandate it is, to actually come to my side to help me. I am the recipient of the benefit of this work. The purpose of this work is to have my best interests at heart and to help me. When? When I sin. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have one whose heart beats for us. We have one whose eyes are on us. If you're here today and you're in the situation I have just described, could I tell you that that heaven that right now to you might seem so stony, cold, and silent, nothing is further from the truth. Because in that glorious, sinless place of heaven, there's a man. The same man who hung and died on a cross because he loved your soul and wanted to make you his own. And he is looking down into your life this morning. And he wants to help. He wants you to focus on him. He wants you to get your eyes off yourself. He wants you to close your ears to the enemy. And he wants to get your attention focused on him. And he wants you to understand this. If you sin, there is one in the presence of the Father. And he is there for you. And he is there for you just for occasions specifically like this. He is your advocate. And he's there to help. Notice the constancy of his work. He's already there. He's always there. This is not a work that he springs to like an emergency responder. He's there. He's in the presence of God. Before I sin, when I sin, while I sin, after I sin. Now, I'm not trying to minimize sin. But if sin happens, he is there in the presence of God for us. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, perfectly accepted to God. He is my representative with the Father so that when sin comes into my life, He is perfectly capable of bringing me back to an enjoyment of that relationship again. Sin can never sever my relationship with my Heavenly Father. It can affect me, and it can affect my enjoyment of that relationship, and it can affect the effectiveness of my, my functioning within that relationship, but sin can never touch the essence of my relationship with my Heavenly Father. He didn't save me because I deserved it. He doesn't keep me because I deserve it. He doesn't love me because I perform for Him. He saved me. He loves me. He accepts me because of the value of the one that's right on His right hand, my helper, my advocate. Notice His commitment to each one of us individually as our advocate. 
specifically says, if any man sin. Any man. You know, I know health care is a big issue. I see Sandy sitting there, so I'll be very careful what I say about health care. Uh, I'm from Canada. Health care is a big issue up in Canada. I'm down in the U.S., and I know health care is a huge issue down here right now politically. So I'm not here to make political statements one way or the other, except to say this, that just being honest, we have to understand that in society in general, there is a level of health care that varies depending on the significance or the importance of the individual. Okay, now that's not a political statement of a multi-tiered health care system. That is a statement of fact. So if we go, for example, to the President of the United States, there is a team of personal physicians who are constantly on the lookout for his health. So he doesn't have to go sit and wait in an emergency room for treatment. Or he doesn't have to wait four months to see a specialist. That's the reality in Canada. You know, something's seriously wrong. It's this one-tier universal health care system. It's all marvelous in theory. Except if you need an MRI, you're going to wait four months to get one because it's not an emergency. Of course, it becomes an emergency and then you get one. God does not have a multi-tiered system of advocacy. If any man sin. You're here today and you feel like the lowest ranked, most insignificant, obscure believer. You're not connected to any big family. You're not moving publicly where everybody knows your name. You're not a celebrity. You're a nobody. At least that's how you feel. Could I tell you that if anyone sin, you personally, individually, you, if you sin, if I sin, we all have exactly the same Advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is there. Some of you will know the poem that Martha Snell Nicholson wrote. I like the sentiment of it. It's not technically maybe accurate in terms of what happens. But the sentiment is very good. And if, like me, you have ever been in this position where the enemy is bombarding you with guilt and, and you know the theory you know the theory of the fact that all your sins were future when you were saved and all your sins were future when Christ was on the cross and he forgave them all. You know all of that, but none of it seems to matter because you just feel like a total failure and you're going to give up. Martha Snell Nicholson, Martha Snell Nicholson wrote this, I sinned and straightway post haste Satan flew before the presence of the Most High God and made a railing accusation there. He said, this soul, this thing of clay and sod has sinned. Tis true that he has named thy name, but I demand his death. For thou hast said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Shall not thy sentence be fulfilled? Is justice dead? Send now this wretched sinner to his doom. What other thing can righteous ruler do? And thus he did accuse me day and night. And every word he spoke, O God, was true. Then quickly one rose up from God's right hand, before whose glory angels veiled their eyes. He spoke, each jot and tittle of the law must be fulfilled. The guilty sinner dies. But wait, suppose this guilt were all transferred to me and that I had paid his penalty. Behold my hands, my side, my feet. One day I was made sin for him and died that he might be presented faultless at thy throne. And Satan fled away, full well he knew that he could not prevail against such love. For every word my dear Lord said was true. If you're here in this meeting this morning, and there is failure, and there's sin, call it what it is, could I just remind you 
that there is one who ceaselessly, tirelessly, continually, with all of his heart, is working on your behalf. And if you would just allow him, and if you would just focus your attention on him, there is always a way back to full, healthy fellowship and communion with your Heavenly Father. Propitiation is not something. The word there is a big word. He is the propitiation for our sins. This is why I said the poem's not totally accurate. Propitiation isn't something he makes when I sin. It doesn't say that if I sin, then I have an advocate that he makes propitiation for that sin. It's not that he is springing into action constantly every time I sin to have to make some fresh application of anything. No. He is the propitiation for our sins. His very presence there, continual unbroken presence at the Father's right hand, He's always there. And He is the entire satisfaction in the eyes not only of a holy God, but in the eyes of a loving Heavenly Father. He is the full satisfaction for the failures of us as His people. So I hope, I don't know many of you, I hope that's a help for somebody. If the devil has you there today, or if you have yourself there today, Remember, we have an advocate with the Father. Let him do his work. And he can certainly bring you back. And all has not been lost. But over to the book of Hebrews, we have the second one. Not only is he my advocate, and that is particularly relevant when I have sinned, when there's failure. But in the book of Hebrews, we learn that he is our great high priest. And the idea there in the book of Hebrews is not so much a truth that I need to remember when I have sinned and there's failure in my life. The idea in the book of Hebrews is that he is presently, actively, energetically, with all of his heart working when there is suffering in my life. When I'm struggling, not so much now with sin that is inside of me, but the effects of sin that are all around me. We live in a world that is full of heartache and adversity, and opposition, and discouragement. And we live and we move in a world that is completely diabolically opposed to everything that's of God. And in that world, we will have tribulation. The Lord said that. In that world, we will have opposition. In that world, we will have adversity. And in that world, we are going to be hurt. We're going to be discouraged. We're going to experience pain. We're going to experience discouragement. We're going to experience loss. We're going to experience loneliness. All of these things are inevitably going to crowd into our life as long as we are here in a world of sin. The Lord knew that. The Lord knows that. And in the book of Hebrews, we learn that he is actively involved in a specific work to come alongside, to meet us in that situation, and to help us. We have a great high priest. There's a number of things the book of Hebrews tells us about it. And again, I don't know my audience completely today, but maybe there's someone here today, and you have a heavy heart. Things haven't turned out the way that you thought they would. Or maybe you've lost a loved one. Or maybe you have someone in your family who's fighting terminal cancer. Or maybe you have any number of things. And there's a heavy heart. And your hands are hanging down, metaphorically. And you've come to Midland Park Conference and you just wonder, where can I get the strength to keep going? This doesn't just affect old people. It affects young people too. 
In fact, among young people, sometimes there's a, a real shell that's there on the outside that they keep up with their peers and they keep up the appearance. And inside, there's a shrinking soul that becomes disillusioned and becomes discouraged and wonders, where are the resources for Christian living? You have an advocate for times when you failed. You have a great high priest. And I want you to notice a number of things the book of Hebrews tells us about his work on our behalf, in us and for us, as our great high priest. First of all, the book of Hebrews reminds us about his compassion. It says, we have a high priest. It says it in the double negative. We have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, our weakness, our suffering. So really what it's saying in very positive terms is, we have a high priest who cares. He's interested. He's interested in me as an individual. Something that I've appreciated so much. In salvation, it's true he died for the world. It's true he gave himself for the church. But as Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, the Son of God loved me. That amazes me. I was saved when I was 10 years old. Little brat. Little missionary's kid brat. That's all I was. And he knew that. But in the middle of, at that time, I don't know, six and a half billion people in the world, he knew me. And he cared about me. And he loved me. And he gave himself for me. So personal. Can I tell you, it's just the same as the great high priest. In the midst of all of the teeming millions that belong to him that are still alive on earth, he knows you. Knows you by your name. Knows your heart. Knows your circumstances. He knows your hurts. He knows your pain. Even at times when you can't find the honesty to open up and tell him about it. He still knows it's there. He longs for you to tell him about it. But he still knows it's there. And he cares. He's interested. He has compassion. He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But the book of Hebrews doesn't just tell us about his competence that he cares. It tells us also about his, not just his compassion that he cares. It tells us about his competence. He's able to do this work. And in the book of Hebrews, it's for one specific reason that he is put forward as being able to do this work. Now, we know that God is infinite. God is infinitely capable. And therefore, he was really capable of providing whatever we needed as God. He made us. He knows us. He understands us. He designed us. But the specific point in the book of Hebrews is not his competence because of who he is as God. The point in the book of Hebrews is this. He understands what we're going through because he was once here. And he went through it as well. He knows that seeing the purposes of God furthered in a human life in a sinful world is tough. Why? Because he was here. And he did it. And he did it perfectly. As a man living in a body of blood and flesh on a world that was cursed with sin, the purposes of God were perfectly fulfilled in his life. And he felt adversity. And he knew loneliness. And he was hurt. And he shed tears. And he felt loss. And because he was here, he understands. And because he was here, he knows what it's like. And even though he is now in the glory of heaven, he has a heart that is still touched, that still understands what you're going through. One of the great sources of discouragement we get psychologically is we think nobody really understands. 
ever been in a situation where you've tried to explain how you feel? You've tried to explain what's getting you down. You've tried to explain how you're struggling. And even as you try to explain it, you get frustrated because you can't seem to explain it in a way that anybody else can understand. And you're not even sure you understand yourself. Could I tell you there is one who does understand? And he understands perfectly. And he knows the feeling of our infirmity. The other point the book of Hebrews makes is that he continues. He continues forever. He doesn't die. High priests in Israel's day died. And another one would rise up. So if you had a great high priest, or if you had a high priest, and he was your representative, and you thought he understood you, and he sort of knew you, and then he dies, and a new one comes along, and you lose everything. All of that history, all of that continuity, all of that relationship, it's all gone. This man continues ever. He knew me the day he saved me. He's known me every day since. He knows me today and he'll know me every day. And every single day, whatever circumstance comes into my life, I have one who's up on a throne in heaven. And as I wake every morning, he's keenly interested in my life. And he's right there to help. So do you. The unfinished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But finally, because my time is gone, I'll just mention what I had in mind in Revelation 1, 2, and 3. The first two things, the advocate, the great high priest, have all to do with me personally as a believer. You personally as a believer. When you come to Revelation 1, 2, and 3, you have another ongoing, unfinished, tireless work that the Lord is doing. That work is among assemblies. Something we don't often think about, perhaps. We look at assembly testimony often as the activity of human beings. We gather together, we separate, we have Bible study, we interact, we do a lot of things. Have you ever thought that there is one who is actively moving? He's aware of what's going on. He says, I know. He's actively intervening. He's actively coming in and judging. He's actively communicating. There's a movement afoot that sort of has... Seriously reduced the importance or significance of local church fellowship, local assembly functioning. The thinking goes like this. As long as I'm doing well as a believer, as long as I'm enjoying communion with the Lord, as long as I'm living in the good of my relationship with Him, my church affiliation is sort of borderline irrelevant. It really doesn't matter. As long as I go somewhere that makes me feel good and meets my needs as a Christian, then that's kind of all that matters. It's my personal walk with the Lord that matters. Yes, your personal walk with the Lord is absolutely critical, but so is collective assembly testimony for Him. You read Revelation 1, 2, and 3. If there's any young person here and you want to know what I was planning to say, email me and I'll give you my notes. But you read Revelation 1, 2, and 3 and you will find that this same one who is our advocate with the Father and working tirelessly as our helper, the same one who is our great high priest who comes along to help us in our times of need, that same one is keenly interested and completely invested personally in the functioning of every local assembly. Paul says to the Ephesians in Acts chapter, to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, referring to the assembly at Ephesus, he says, which he has purchased with his own blood. The local assembly that you're part of means absolutely everything to Christ. What does it mean to you? Let's just sing a verse of a hymn before Mr. McKeown comes up. Thank you very much for your attention. By the way, if any of the younger folks do want any of my notes, you're welcome. My email is andrewusher at rogers.com. Two S's in Usher. So A-N-D-R-E-W-U-S-S-H-E-R at rogers.com. And I would be happy to give you anything I have.
Number 15, before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who li- ever lives and pleads for me. We'll just sing verse 2 and 3 of number 15 and we'll stand to sing. <laughs>